way back to the fifth chapter of Galatians. I'm not, uh, it's confession time, we talked about that in Connect, so I figured I uh, might start with that. I'm going to confess to you that I'm a horrible gardener. Not much of a gardener, I do not have a green thumb whatsoever, my thumb is uh, irrevocably black, anything that I touch turns to death in a matter of weeks, generally from lack of water. My usual response when Ashley asks me to plant something is to say, you know, we don't need another thing to take care of, which incidentally is the same response she gets when she starts thinking it might be a good idea to get a cat. But at our current home, I have inherited some plants and some trees that, that line the front of our house. And uh, just to be honest with you, most of the vegetation that is found on our property is uh, in a pretty miserable state. Some were dead upon arrival, uh, having lost the battle against the cold of this past winter. Others were not sufficiently tended in the late fall or the early spring so that there are living shoots attempting to survive in the midst of dead stalks. And for the first five months that we lived in this house, I have been content to allow our flower garden to exist in this general state of disrepair. But a couple of weeks ago, as I was mowing the yard, and maybe it was as a result of working through these sermons on holiness, I said, you know what, the time has come. It is time to get to work. It is time to make something of this yard that we've been given. And so I decided to take action. I took some hedge trimmers and a pair of hand clippers, and I went to work cutting away the the dead branches and pulling out the overgrown weeds and removing everything that might try and steal nutrients from the plants or the trees and thereby hinder their growth. And my garden now, if you can call it that, is better for it. It is cleaner, it is healthier, it is livelier, it is greener. And as I did so, I thought, you know, this is a really good metaphor for sanctification. What I, what I was doing in removing all of the hindrances to growth is very similar to what we talked about last week in mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the flesh. See, sin is like those dead branches and those choking weeds in the garden of our hearts that hinder the growth of spiritual fruit. And we need to get rid of them, and we need to get rid of them in the power of the Holy Spirit. But I've also noticed something else in the last couple of weeks since I cut out the dead branches and since I pulled out the weeds. Even though the the plants and the trees appear healthier, there's still not much growth. There still are hardly any flowers and there's still no fruit. This is because gardening is much more than simply cutting away death. It's more than pruning bushes and cutting off dead limbs and pulling out overgrown weeds. Gardening is also about planting new flowers and fertilizing soil. In other words, gardening requires two very vital activities. It requires pruning and cultivating. And I would say to you that so does the work of sanctification. Now last week we envisaged the, the human heart as a battlefield on which Two mortal enemies, the flesh and the spirit, are waging war for mastery and dominion over our soul. And the focus on that message was in the putting to death of sin. Putting to death 
the deeds of the flesh, crucifying the flesh, to borrow Paul's phrase from Galatians 5.24, crucifying the flesh with its passions and its desires. Thus we employed all manner of violent, bloody, military language. Well, this week I want to switch metaphors and I want, to, I want us to imagine the human heart as a garden in which God intends to grow beautiful flowers bearing all manner of good fruit. If that good spiritual fruit is to grow in the garden of my heart, then I need to give attention to those two vital activities. I need to give attention to pruning away all that would hinder growth, i.e. sin, but I also need to give attention to cultivating the fruit that I desire to grow in the garden of my heart. I need to cut away the dead limbs and I need to pull out the weeds, the dead branches of sin and the weeds of iniquity that would steal nutrients and steal space in my heart and would choke out the fruit that the Holy Spirit desires to grow. But holiness is about more than just putting sin to death. It's more than just identifying sin and attacking it. It's more than pruning. We must also cultivate the garden of our hearts. We need to fertilize the soil. We need to water the plants. We need to provide the sunlight that is necessary in order for photosynthesis to take place. You get the point. So while last week we dealt with the issue of sanctification and holiness by seeking to put sin to death. This week I want to turn our attention to seeking to grow fruit. Because God desires that in every one of you, that you would reflect a garden that bears fruit. And not just any fruit, good fruit. And not just any good fruit, good fruit that remains. And good fruit that remains in abundance. That's his plan. That's his desire. That is what you have been predestined to be. You have been predestined to be a fruitful garden in which the fruit of the Spirit grow in abundance, giving blessing to the people of this church and to the people of the world. That's what he's going to do with you. That's going to be the focus of our, of our message this morning. We need to actively cultivate fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, Paul establishes a contrast between walking by the Spirit and living according to the desires of the flesh, which is our fallen and sinful nature. Basically, says Paul, you cannot do both. You cannot walk by the Spirit and walk according to the flesh. These two forces as they were, I hate to use the word force because the Spirit is a person, but these two desires are in irreconcilable opposition to one another and they create within our hearts conflicting desires. The flesh yearning for sin and the Spirit yearning for righteousness. That's what Paul describes in verse 17. And then in verses 19 to 21, Paul describes what a life lived according to the flesh looks like, and it's not pretty. He lists 15 deeds of the flesh, and he, then he concludes by warning us that those who live in such a way, those who practice the, such things, those who embrace the deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, they will not be saved. But then in verses 22 to 23, Paul describes the life that is lived according to the Spirit. And he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Now, as with the deeds of the flesh that we established last week, this list of nine Christian graces, it's not exhaustive. We could probably add others to the list. Fruit like wisdom, righteousness, godliness. But rather what Paul is seeking to do, he's painting a portrait of the spiritual man, just as in verses 19 to 21 he painted the portrait of the fleshly man. And so we're going to examine this portrait first thing this morning. We're going to examine the fruit of the Spirit, which are the result of walking by the Spirit. We're going to examine what the heart of the spiritual man looks like. What does God desire for the garden of our hearts to produce? Verses 22 and 23 show us these nine fruits. The first fruit of the Spirit, he lists, is love. And I like what one commentator wrote when he said, you know, Love is not one virtue among a list of virtues. Rather, love is the sum and substance of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, everything else that follows, falls under the umbrella of love. Patience is the overflow of love. Self-control is the result of love. And as it is utterly impossible to define love in the course of a paragraph, you know, If you go and you look at other pastors, you go and look at commentaries, they might spend an entire week on each of the fruit of the Spirit, but you probably think me tedious enough for spending six months on the book of Galatians. So, what we're going to do, we're going to spend a paragraph on each one of these fruits, but in so doing, we're we're just going to be barely skimming the surface of what each of these means. I could spend an hour on the topic of love. What does Christian love look like? And, And we would be very, we wouldn't be any closer than when we've first begun, so... Let me, let me see if I can define love. I thought, I'm just going to give you five statements that define Christian love. This is what it, Paul is talking about in Galatians 5.22 when he speaks of love. In five statements. Number one, to be a Christian is to love God and to love His Son. It's the definition of being saved. Salvation is the creation of a love for God and a love for Christ that was not previously there. It is the creation of love where before there was only hostility. Number two, to be a Christian is not only to love God, but to love one another. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Number three, Our love for God and our love for one another, this Christian fruit of the Spirit, this agape love, has as its source God's love for us. We love, John says, because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. Our love for one another flows out of His love for us. Number four, the love which is the fruit of the Spirit, listen, It goes beyond merely natural affections. Rather, the love of which Paul speaks here is the creation of supernatural affections. In other words, the love that is the fruit of the Spirit is not merely love for my wife, love for my children, love for my family, love for my friends. The love that Paul is speaking of here, true Christian love, is a love that goes beyond that and it's a love that extends to my enemies. It's a love that extends to those who are not family and friends. It's a love that extends to those who offer me nothing in return. Which is why it has to be supernatural. 
And number five, Christian love is defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, where among other things, he says that love is humble, it is self-giving, it is unconditional, it seeks the eternal good of the object of its affection. Now, as I said, we could say a whole lot more about what love is, but let me simply highlight that when the Bible says something like this, 1 John 4, 7, that everyone, everyone who is born of God, everyone who loves, rather, is born of God and knows God, the love of which John speaks has to be unique to Christians because not everyone knows God and is born of God, right? You see how it works? If John is going to say something like, everyone who loves in the Christian sort of way knows God and is born of God, then only those who know God and are born of God can love in this sort of way. Therefore, it can't be the kind of love that is found beyond the walls of the church and is found out in the, out in the world. It's got to be a different kind of love. When Jesus says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another, the love of which Jesus speaks has to be different from the love of the world. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a differentiating factor between us and them. The love that is the, that is the fruit of the Spirit has to be something that is resident within us that is not available out there. So beware of confusing supernatural love with natural affection. Beware of hearing the fruit of the Spirit of lo- is love and saying, well, I love my kids, and I love my wife, I love my family, and I love my friends. Pagans love their kids, and they love their wives, sometimes, and they love their family, and they love their friends. They love the lovely. Unregenerate people love the lovely, and if your love only extends to the lovely, you have not been regenerated. Because the love that is produced by the Spirit dwelling in the hearts of those who believe is a love which expands past the lovely and reaches the unlovely. The fruit of love has not grown in the garden of your heart until you're loving people that otherwise naturally you would not love to where you have to throw up your hands and say, I love by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit at work within me. That's the kind of love that we're speaking of. The love that is the fruit of the Spirit must be a love which causes the world to stop and marvel because it is a love which simply cannot be produced by the power of the flesh. Secondly, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is the believer's delight and satisfaction in God. It is that deep-seated, gut-level Emotion that is felt by a heart that has discovered the inestimable treasure that is Jesus Christ. And by faith has received this treasure as his own. So where do you get this treasure, Jesus, joy connection? I get it from Matthew 13, 44. Do you remember the parable of the hidden treasure? It's a one verse parable, but it, it, it speaks the world. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like... A treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again, listen, and from his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If we were to interpret that parable, I would tell you that Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. In him is found that which money can never buy, that is the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. 
So imagine the joy that is experienced by the heart that has been awakened to see that this treasure is Christ and He has freely offered to me my faith. And therefore, out of my joy with having found Christ and having found the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in Him, I'm willing to sell all I have in order to purchase this field. That's the kind of joy that we're talking about. It's not the fleeting and fragile joy of the world which is rooted in circumstances that are ever-changing, but rather is a joy which is rooted and grounded in the unchanging Christ and His unchanging grace. It is a joy, therefore, that perseveres through sufferings and indeed is found even in suffering because we know that God ordains suffering to increase our joy and to make us like Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Number three, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. The Apostle Paul speaks of peace in three ways. He speaks of peace with God, which comes as the result of being justified by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hostility between believing sinners and God And the enmity between God and believing sinners has been taken away, having been nailed to the cross. We have peace with God. But Paul also speaks about a peace of God. Which is that internal sense of calm, of knowing that our providential God is working all things together for my good and for His glory. Romans 8.28 So I can look and, and, and... Drift through the storms of this life knowing that God will not allow me to capsize. That everything, every storm that comes my way has been given me by His good and loving and providential hand. But Paul also speaks about peace between believers, which is also the fruit of the Spirit and the result of the cross of Christ. Number four, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. This is the grace of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be long-suffering with those who otherwise would annoy or aggravate or offend us. It's also that supernatural ability which enables us to persevere through adversity and tribulation and persecution. Number five, the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. You know, every, every one of these fruit of the Spirit is an attribute of God's own character And the production of this fruit in our hearts is nothing more than God restoring His own image in us by the power of the Spirit. So just as God is kind toward those who are helpless and wretched, extending grace toward them and wooing them to repentance, right? It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. Even so, the kindness that is the fruit of the Spirit is our kindness in reaching out to the helpless and to the wretched and seeking to bring them to God. It's the desire and the readiness of a gracious disposition towards those who are in need, a readiness to extend mercy and aid. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. According to Timothy George, who wrote an excellent commentary on Galatians, he says, quote, that goodness conveys the idea of benevolence and generosity towards someone else. It's a going the second mile when such is not required. That's goodness. It's like the heart that has been born of the Spirit and in which love is flowing 
It's like that well of love overflows onto other people. The overflow of the well of love inside the heart of the believer is goodness. Number seven, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Faithfulness is trustworthiness, reliability, dependability, loyalty. It's a life of integrity. It is keeping your promises, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. A faithful husband is one who who keeps his commitments and his marriage vows to his wife. Listen, not from external societal constraints, not because he has to, not begrudgingly, but from a heart that truly loves the object of his affection, which is his wife. Number eight, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, often translated as meekness, which so often has the unfortunate connotation of being weak or non-assertive or passive. You've probably heard the phrase, meekness is not weakness, and while cliche, it's true. It's gentleness, yet power. Always under control and in submission to the will of the Father. Meekness is descriptive of the character of Jesus. Think, if you get the idea that meekness is weakness... We need to look at Christ who is so often described as meek. And we think about Jesus there in the garden. When he, when he turns to his disciples who are thinking they're going to fight their way, rather ridiculously, they're going to fight their way out of a Roman legion. And he says, put your swords away. Do you not think that I could have called out and the Father would send down 12 legions of angels to wipe every sinner here from the face of the earth? Yet what do we see him doing? Here's my hands. He allows himself to be bound, tried, tortured, and crucified. Why? Because it was the Father's will. He who had infinite power to do anything by the breath of his mouth submitted to death on the cross, even praying for those who crucified him. That's gentleness. Number nine, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control is that supernatural ability to restrain and master one's passions and desires. You often can't see self-control in the positive. You only generally recognize it when it's missing. As in addicts, gluttons, drunkards. All right? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the good fruit that good trees produce. This is the 30, 60, 100-fold crop that is produced when the good seed meets with good soil. This is the good and lasting fruit that is produced when the, vine, when the branches abide in the true vine. This is what the garden of the heart produces when it is pruned and cultivated in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to ask yourself a question, having looked in the mirror of this image of the fruit of the Spirit, I want you to ask whether this fruit grows in the garden of your heart. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that fruit present? It must be. Because it is the evidence of the Spirit's 
residence and power at work within your heart. I want you to turn over with me to John chapter 15. Beloved, there is great danger in fruitlessness. And I want you to be forewarned. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Look down at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me, my disciples, by implication, if you don't bear much fruit, you're not my disciple, and you'll be cut off and dragged into the fire and burned. Every true and living branch bears fruit. The Father makes sure of that. In fact, He takes those fruit-bearing branches and He prunes them and He cultivates them so that they bear more fruit, says verse 2. The sap of the Spirit is flowing through living branches and producing an abundant harvest. So, beloved, beware of being a fruitless branch. You probably have known of fruitless branches You probably have been in church with fruitless branches. Fruitless branches are those longtime church members who are cancerous, divisive, mean-spirited, hateful, bitter, unforgiving, grudge-holding, self-centered, stingy, joyless creatures. They never tended to the garden of their heart. Consequently, their garden is full of thorns and thistles and death. But where there is no fruit, there is no spirit. And where there is no spirit, there is no faith. And where there is no faith, there is no salvation. Don't be a dead branch. Tend to the garden of your heart while there is time. I have preached the funerals of people I suspect were dead branches. And I will tell you what I stood before our church in Buffalo and said. Don't make it hard for me to preach your funeral. Because if there is significant doubt in my mind as to whether you were a dead branch or a living branch, I will not preach your funeral as if you were in heaven. Because there is too much at stake. Unbelievers frequent funerals all the time. And if they know someone to be hateful and mean and stingy and joyless and unforgiving and bitter, and I stand up here and say, isn't it great that so-and-so is in heaven? They get the wrong impression that there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. I hate preaching the funeral of dead branches. I'll do them. But I will not do them as if they were living branches. 
Tend to the garden of your heart. These fruits are real. And they must be present and increasing or else the branch is dead on the vine. And I issue you this warning because Jesus warns his disciples, think who he's in the midst of. Judas has already departed by John 15. And he stands before 11 disciples who have been with him for three years. Those who will form the foundation of the church. And he tells them, any branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away, cut off, dragged away, and burned. He warns us in the strongest of language. So just just let the warning hang heavy on you for a second. Because I think Jesus intends for that to motivate us to a bit of fruit cultivation. I think Jesus intends for it to to motivate us to tend to the garden of our hearts by, by cutting off the deadness and pulling out the weeds and fertilizing the soil and watering it with the Spirit. So be warned. Are you warned? Because I want to warn you against the second thing. I want to warn you against despair Because you don't look a whole lot like Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I want to warn you against excessive fruit inspection. In other words, I I doubt very seriously whether, and we talked about this in Connect this morning. I doubt very seriously whether any true believer can look at the the list of Galatians and the list in Galatians 5, 22 through 23 and feel a keen sense of satisfaction saying, yeah, I, I got all those. Doing good. On the contrary, you probably look at this portrait and feel a sense of despair because your garden doesn't look hardly anything like that garden. In your estimation, the garden of your heart looks like the garden in front of my house, which is little bitty shoots of green trying to survive in the midst of deadness and brownness and dryness and fruitlessness. So let me encourage you from the same passage in John 15. This time, I don't want you to hear the warning to the fruitless branches. I want you to listen for the encouragement to the fruit-bearing branches. He says this, Every branch that bears fruit, my Father prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You, beloved, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do, say it to me, nothing. Okay? So if apart from Christ, we can do nothing, and we look through careful self-examination at the portrait in Galatians 5, through 23, and we say, the garden of my heart looks like a few green shoots trying to come up in the midst of, of dry death. Where did those green shoots come from? They came from Christ. Do you see the encouragement? If you've got fruit, even though you're dissatisfied with the harvest, 
If you've got life, even though you're dissatisfied that it's surrounded by this dry, fruitless death and you want to rip it out, that's great. Get to, get to the ripping, get to the killing of sin, that's fine. But be encouraged, beloved, because every, every branch in me that bears fruit, and there are no branches that bear fruit that aren't in him, he prunes so it will bear more fruit. He's going to take the little bit of fruit that you have in him by the Spirit and he's going to cause it to magnify and multiply. And you will look more and more like the portrait given in Galatians 5.22-23. Why? Because you've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. Whose portrait do you think verses 22 and 23 is? Jesus's verses 22 and 23 what Paul did I think is I think he sits down sits down and says now what's Jesus like love joy peace patience and so on and so forth and you know what God is doing to every one of you by the power of the spirit he is conforming you into the image of Jesus so I don't look a whole lot like him yet it's okay you will you will Listen, I know that you have a divided heart that doesn't love God as much as you wish, as much as you should. I, I know that you have trouble loving the unlovely in your life and in this church. I know that you are fighting for joy in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering. I know that you don't always feel at peace with God or feel the peace of God. You're not always at peace with one another. I know how impatient you can get with your kids how unkind you can be to your spouse. I know that you struggle with greed and discontentment. I know that you don't always keep your word. I know that you lose your temper at times. How do I know this? Because I do too. But take courage, beloved, because God is going to prune you and you will bear much fruit. He will tend to the garden of your heart and he will cultivate fruit therein and you will bear much. And by the time he is finished with you, the garden of your heart will not look like that description of the fruitless branch that I painted a few minutes ago. It will be filled with beautiful flowers. You will be the kind of person that by the time you're 80, the younger people in the church long to spend time with you because it cheers them up. Because you love them. Because you're so filled with joy. Because you're so kind and generous. Because you're so godly and Christ-like. God is conforming you into the image of Christ. And he will see to it that his work is finished. So the fruit that you have, small and fragile and unsatisfactory though it may be to you, would not exist at all did the Spirit not dwell within you. For apart from Christ, you can do nothing. And it is only by abiding in the vine, nourished by the sap of the Spirit, that the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will begin to bud. So your, your dissatisfaction with your current level of fruitfulness is a good sign, and it is a holy desire. And God will take that desire, and He will meet it. And you will be radiant, and you will be holy. And here's how He's going to do it. Let's talk about how to cultivate holiness as we close this morning. The fostering of spiritual fruit takes some intentional work. 
Nobody plants a garden without first tilling the soil and adding the necessary fertilizer. Nobody but me, and that's why all my plants die. Miracle grow, some other nitrogen-rich topsoil. What this does, this preparatory work creates a garden in which the growth of fruit can readily take place. Even so, it is necessary for us to prepare our soil. It's necessary that the hard and crusted soil of our hearts be worked through, turned over, and softened, and that the essential nutrients for growth be added so, with it, so that when seeds are, gro- are sown, they find the adequate nutrition necessary to blossom and bear fruit. All right, so how do we do this? How do we, how do we prepare the soil of our hearts? How do we cultivate the kind of fruit that we find here in Galatians 5? Well, the preparation of the soil of our heart takes place, no surprise, through the diligent use of the means of grace. It's simply attending to the preaching of the word and reading it. It's prayer. It's fellowship. It's worship. It's coming to the Lord's table. The whole, see, the Holy Spirit rarely, I'm not saying he never, I'm saying he rarely works in extraordinary ways, zapping people with fruit, with fire from above. The ordinary way in which the the Spirit works is through the ordinary means of grace. He rarely causes fruit to grow in a heart that is hard and stony and malnourished and unprepared for growth. He regularly and ordinarily causes fruit to grow in a heart that has been turned over and tilled and fertilized through the Word, through fellowship, through worship, and through prayer. So the first thing I would say to you is prepare for growth. Be diligent, be disciplined, make use of the means that God has provided to prepare the soil of your hearts and prepare. But preparation of the soil is only one aspect of cultivation. You also have to plant. You've got to sow seeds. So I want to remind you of a very practical paradigm for sowing the seeds of grace, which, when activated by faith, produce fruit in the power of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in our study of Galatians, we're in the beginning of Galatians 3, I gave you an acronym uh, to help us think through what it means to live by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than to approach the Christian life as if it were a life of law, you know, just, just commandments to be fulfilled in the power of the flesh. In other words... Seeking to answer the question, how do I walk by the flesh in the verse 25 kind of way? Or how do I walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh? How do we produce real, lasting, grace-wrought, spiritual fruit rather than counterfeit, joyless, bitter fruit of begrudging obedience to the law? You have on the back of your bulletin a five-letter acronym, APTAT. does not come from me, it comes from from John Piper, who preached a sermon in which he used this on Galatians 5.25. And I give it to you because I found it to be helpful. I found it to be a helpful way of being intentional about walking by the Spirit in specific situations in this life, rather than trying to walk through those situations in my own strength, producing my own fruit, but rather walking through them by faith, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to produce His fruit. Much fruit, fruit that remains. So in the time that remains this morning, I want to walk us through this aptat, aptat rather, paradigm 
in, in hopes that you will recognize how different it is from the way we normally approach life. So maybe as you start your day during your morning devotion time or as you, as you come upon a situation in which you know that the power to do good does not reside within your flesh, right? Romans 7, 18 kind of way. A time when you're confronted with a situation requiring self-control or requiring that supernatural love, requiring an obedience that your flesh does not want to render. When, you, when you're faced with a situation, you find yourself crying out with the Apostle Paul that the willing to do good is present within me, but the actual doing of good is not. Maybe when you're called upon to love somebody who's offering nothing in return but a headache and the depletion of your emotional reservoir. Maybe when your children have grated on your last nerve and you don't want to lose your temper, but you feel the blood pressure beginning to rise. Maybe when you need to turn away and your mind tells you and the spirit tells you you need to turn away from this immoral relationship or this sensual image on the computer screen, but everything in your flesh is crying out for indulgence. I want you to walk yourself through this acronym, all right? Let's walk through it and then we'll close. The first A stands for acknowledge. Acknowledge what? Acknowledge that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Acknowledge that the power to do good does not reside within you. You cannot manufacture love for the unlovely, love for the enemy. You don't Possess the self-control required or necessary to overcome and resist temptation. You don't have the wisdom necessary to make the looming decision. See, part of the mystery of sanctification is that bearing spiritual fruit begins by acknowledging that I can't produce spiritual fruit. And I need the Spirit to do it within me. So this first step is really putting to death pride and self-sufficiency and acknowledging my own helplessness. P stands for pray. Pray that God would bear the fruit of the Spirit in you. If it's love you need, pray. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, that God would cause you to abound in love. If it's joy, pray that the God of all hope would fill you with joy and peace in believing. Romans 15.13. Pray that God would equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.21. In other words, acknowledging that you can't do it, ask God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Ask Him to overcome the sinful desire of the flesh with a superior and stronger desire of the Spirit for righteousness. T stands for trust. Trust the promise of God. If we've learned nothing else in the book of Galatians, we've learned that the Spirit works through faith. Galatians 3, 3, 3-5, 5-5, nothing matters but faith working through love. And that faith needs to have an object, something in which to rest its anchor, something in which to send down its roots. And that object is the Word of God. So find a promise of God that is specific to your need. Maybe you need love. Maybe you should remember that Romans 5.5 says that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. Maybe you need wisdom. It would be good to remember that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without finding fault, and it will be given to him. 
Maybe you need discipline or self-control, and you need to remember that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and of power and of self-control. See, God has promised to sanctify you. God has promised to grant you everything that is necessary for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. So believe His promise, trust His word, and as I said earlier, the word of God is like a seed planted in the soil of your heart, which when activated by faith, bears fruit in righteousness by the power of the Spirit. Next, you need to act in obedience to God's word. In other words, we're not sitting back and waiting for a feeling. If you're praying for love, you don't sit back and wait to feel lovey before you go into the situation that requires love. If you're praying for wisdom, you don't sit and wait for some wise thought to fill your head before you go in and begin to prepare to make the decision. That would be a fairly faithless way to act. And God calls us to act in faith. Don't wait to feel love or joy or wisdom or conviction. You act the miracle by trusting that God has heard and answered your prayer. Is that not what he told us in in John 15, 6? Ask whatever you wish in my name and it will be granted to you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Trust that God has heard your prayer and he has answered and provided you with the strength that you need. And in this way, having come to God in utter helplessness and dependence, having prayed and asked him to do for you what you cannot do, having trusted his promise to do what you've prayed for, now you act and when God supplies what you need, the result is not the fruit of the flesh but is the fruit of the spirit and all glory belongs to him. Which is why lastly you need to thank him. Thank Him for granting you the grace and the will and the power to do by His Spirit what you could not do by the flesh. And when your joyful obedience is the fruit of the Spirit rather than the begrudging work of the flesh, all glory and praise belongs to God because it was His strength at work within you, 1 Peter 4.11, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. In other words, the fruit is His, not yours. So let me give you one example and then we'll close. Maybe you have a meeting coming up this week. Somebody has requested your time and there's nothing in you that wants to go to this meeting. They're mad at you. Or you know that they're going to ask you for something that you don't really want to give. Or you know that in this meeting they're going to absolutely exhaust you with their problems. But you know that the loving thing to do is to extend love to your brother asking nothing in return. That you know that God has called you to love not with word or with tongue but in deed and in truth. So maybe Wednesday you've got this this meeting looming ahead and you know because you've examined your heart. You know your flesh wants to bail out on the meeting and you know that your flesh does not have the love that's going to be required to give the right answers To extend love in the way that God has called you to do. What are you going to do? Well, leading up to this meeting, I'm going to be doing a lot of A and P. I'm going to be doing a lot of acknowledging, Lord, there's nothing in me that wants to go to this meeting. There's nothing in me that wants to extend love and mercy to this person who maybe is angry with me and does not have love and mercy for me. There's nothing in me that wants to love my enemy. And I can't do it. 
but P. I'm, I'm praying and asking you to do for me what I can't do in order to do what you've commanded me to do. I know that sin would be to avoid this meeting. I know that sin would be to act as if I've got something else going on and I'm just far too busy to give my time to you. So I'm praying for you to do in me what I can't do. And I'm going to trust you to do it. I'm going to trust that you, when you call me to love this person in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will indeed give power so that I can love them. I'm going to trust that when I've prayed that you would cause me to increase and abound in love by the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, that you mean what you say. That you won't send me into this meeting weaponless. That you won't send me into this meeting devoid of the love that you've promised to supply. I'm going to walk into this meeting trusting that you have granted me by the power of your spirit everything pertaining to life and godliness, including the ability to love the unlovely, to love the enemy. And then when Wednesday comes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to get sick. I'm going to act. I'm going to walk into the meeting, head held high, walking in the promise of God to do what he's promised to do. I'm going to take him at his word. You will give me the patience I need. You will enable me to hold my tongue when I want to react. You'll give me the love for this person to help to see them not as the one who is robbing me of my time and depleting me of my emotional reservoir, but the one whom God loves and for whom Christ died who is in desperate need. And you've called me to meet that need. I'm going to walk into the meeting. I'm going to do what God has so clearly commanded me to do in his word. And then when the meeting's over, I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to say thank you. Thank you for enabling me to walk by the spirit and not fulfill the desire of the flesh. This is how we walk by the spirit. Not, not, not in the teeth gritting, joyless power of the flesh. I'm just going to... I'm going to go to that meeting, I'm going to love that person. But rather, finding the fruit of the Spirit growing in the garden of my heart by a power that I did not possess. By grace, through faith, in the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. So let's Walk by the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So that by the end of our life, our garden is full of bountiful and beautiful fruit. So that by the end of our life, we can say, I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. What I'm saying is, properly speaking... Our sanctification, our growth in holiness has the same banner flying above it as does our justification, which is to say it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the power of the Holy Spirit alone, because of the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. God sanctifies His people in the same way that He saves His people, by grace, through faith, in Christ, to the glory of His name. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and I'm going to invite you for just a few minutes of silence and solitude 
I'm going to invite you to think of a situation coming up this week that you need the Spirit's power for. I can supply some of you with one if you can't think of one. It's called Vacation Bible School. It's called a bunch, a room full of three-year-olds. Maybe it's called working in close proximity with someone this week that you've had a little tiff with. Maybe it's something different. Maybe you've got a problem in your marriage and, and you, you're really wanting to respond to your spouse in a way that shows them But you know, husbands, that you're called to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. And you know, wives, that you're called to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. And there's nothing inside you that wants to do that. Except the spirit who longs for obedience to the word of God. Maybe it's something different. Maybe... Maybe you have a decision coming up this week for which you need divine wisdom because unlike God, you cannot see the end from the beginning. Whatever it is, I want you to take just a few moments and I want you to walk through this paradigm. And I'm going to guide you. You got it in mind, the situation? First, I want you to acknowledge that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. The desire to obey the word of God is there, but the power to do it is not. Put your heart in the posture of the little child who has to come to his dad and ask for help. Helpless, weak, utterly dependent. Secondly, I want you to pray for God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I want you to pray for power, for love. Peace, for patience, for wisdom, for self-control to resist that temptation that you know is coming up this week. Now I want you to latch a hold of a promise and trust in it. Let me just offer you 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3. That God has granted to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. God will give you the wisdom you need. He will supply you with the love that you lack. He will provide you with the patience that you require. He will give you the strength by the power of His Spirit to do what He has commanded you to do. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And then I want you to do this. I want you to pray for God to give you the courage to act. To say no to the temptation. To go to the dreaded meeting 
come all five days to vacation Bible school. And then I want you to thank him in advance for what he's going to do in helping you to walk by the Spirit. Let me pray for you. My God and my Father, I pray for these your sheep. You have commanded them to walk by the Spirit and therefore not to carry out the desires of the flesh. And I pray for every person here who has prayed that you will help them to do just that. That by walking by the Spirit, they may bear the fruit of the Spirit. And acting by faith in the power of the Spirit, they may do what otherwise they could not and would not. And so prove to be your disciples. Help them this week to walk by the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.